Welcome to the Ramp Church Podcast. We are so honoured that you've joined us today and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church forward slash mcr or find us on social media. Now let's head straight into this week's message. chapters is because I like to look at it as a season of your life, not just something you listen to. That God's actually writing a story through your life. Psalm says it like this, before a single moment of your life came to pass, every day was written in a book. I just see my friends Sam and Karis right there. Would you guys just wave? I just want everybody to see you. Welcome home. Welcome home from Wales, visiting from Wales. They're a part of the Ramp Church family. I, it's been months since we've seen you guys. Oh, I can't wait to catch up and hear how you've been. So, and they're married. They're married. You got married. Come on, yes. Oh, so good to have you home. Well, so we, we, we call our teaching series as chapters because there's something beautiful in the story of your life. And often we like to judge our life. We like to identify or describe the value or the worth of our life based on one moment. But God looks at the whole story. And he, he often transforms it in entire chapters. So we're, we're entering into to a chapter as a faith family and it's called what Stacy introduced it last week, and we got so fired up about it, we decided to turn it into a chapter of the Ramp Church story. So it's called The Great Commitment to the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And so we're going to enter a season where we're looking at what does it mean to love each other well? We're going to get really practical, so there's going to be some messages where we talk about what does it mean to actually be, be there for someone or with someone in seasons where they're going through challenges, um, how, how do we become better communicators with, with one another? Very practical things like that. All the way to enriching your spiritual life, loving God, and then reaching those who are maybe in a broken place or maybe in a place where they could use an understanding of who God is in the Great Commission. So we're going to look at all of those, and so we're entering this space, and I'm, I'm expectant for the days ahead. But today I am talking about the Great Commandments. So if you have your Bible, turn with, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have your Bible, it's cool. I'm going to read it, but it'll also be on the screen above me. Um, or you can just break out your smartphone and turn to Matthew chapter number 22. And this is Jesus speaking, but we're also going to skip to, um, we're also going to skip to Deuteronomy. So you'll be able to put your finger in Matthew 22 and then, then flip between Deuteronomy and Matthew. Matthew 22, let's start reading in verse number 34. Verse number 34. But when the Pharisees, those are Jewish religious leaders of that day, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. This is not what I'm preaching on, but I just want to stop right here. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees were, were lawyers of that day. Pharisees were religious leaders. And those two groups of people did not get along. 
But in this verse, we see that they gathered together. Isn't it, isn't it funny how nothing will bring two divided groups together like a common enemy? You, you need to notice in your life what you find common ground with someone else around. You hearing me? Sometimes we think that that relationship is genuine when it's actually only based on a common enemy. And you've got, if, if you invest in that type of relationship, you're actually going you're, you're gonna to come up in a, in a place where you're going to come up empty because when the enemy changes or you mature or heal beyond the offense, all of a sudden you're going to feel yourself separating from that person. And you're going to realize they weren't, they weren't here because they believed in me. They were just here because they wanted a teammate in the fight. So we've got to be people who are bigger than our enemies. Are you hearing me? But what was happening here is Jesus was showing up. Now, Jesus was an everyday dude. He was a builder. He was a carpenter. He, he, he was from um, a no-name town. But he was also the son of God. And he was brilliant. But he was an untrained theologian, an untrained rabbi. And here... Much of his ministry was spent, well, almost sometimes in verbal sparring with religious leaders. And what had kind of happened just, just now was he had come into the public space and he was teaching people there, not unlike this. And then the religious leaders came and started to engage with him, almost like they're, they're trying to spar with him openly, like little like kung fu championship, like right there in front of everybody. And what they realized is we, can't, we don't have anything on this dude. And so what had happened is Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the lawyers. And so now the Pharisees are like, oh, now it's our turn. So the Pharisees step up, and this is what it says. Verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Now that word test is, in, in our English does not communicate what the original Greek language actually is saying. Now that word test doesn't mean test as in to gain knowledge. It, it means test as in to challenge. So one of the religious leaders, the lawyers, came up to Jesus to challenge him. Do you know it's incredibly important, your posture when you approach Jesus? Some of you today, you're in this space, at less to learn, and this isn't to shame you, it's just to identify that we're all in different places this morning. You're not here to learn, you're here to challenge and the thing about coming to Jesus is before you learn something about him, he'll always teach you something about yourself. Coming to Jesus is like approaching a great piece of art. If you ever approach a great piece of art, this especially happens with abstract art. You come upon some abstract art in an art gallery, and you're like, what even is that? Like, what am I looking at? You're like, oh, I see it. It's like there's like a mountain. Everybody was like, what? That's on, a, that's on a mountain? You know what? Well, the, the first thing that happens in any great art piece is you learn something about yourself as the viewer. And great abstract artists, actually what they're trying to do is they're trying to, get, they're trying to put you in a position where you are, you are comparing and analyzing your own emotions based on what you're looking at. And you can't understand the art until you first understand yourself. 
So why is Picasso, why is, why is his work still in, in, enduring? Because there's something about it that makes me question the way I view humans when I look at the way his, his paintings are, are in cubes and all the... It, first, I question my own, my own stance, and I have to start with analyzing my own place before I can understand what he's communicating. Jesus is the same way. Because you never get to set the agenda with Jesus. Do you hear me? You may be here to challenge him today, but the first thing you're going to learn is not something probably about him, but it's probably going to be something about you. Because something in you and in me needs to be adjusted before I can see him rightly. Because the Bible says this about him, and if he is truly God, then this has to be true about him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means there's nothing about him that can change to get me to realize or see him better. The thing that needs to change in this relationship is something in me. So here's my question to you, and we can learn this. Thank you, lawyer, in the story. How have you come to Jesus today? That's my question to you. How have you come to him today? Have you come to him as a teacher? He is a teacher. But he's more than that. Have you come to him as God? He is God, but he's more than that. How can he be more than that? He was also a human. He also knows right where you're at. The Bible says he's touched with the feelings, the emotions of your infirmities, the things you carry. How have you come to him today? And here's what I'm going to say. What you experience today as a result of who he is has more to do with where you're sitting than who he is. So what I want to invite you in today, the first thing I want to invite you in before I, before I continue this message, I want to invite you into a space, here's where I want, of, of, of humility of heart, openness of mind. Can we do that today? And I just want to pray over you and, and me. I want, I, want, I want to change today, and I want to continue with this message. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come before you. To come with a posture of openness of heart and mind. And we want to learn what the truth is. We want to learn who we are. And we want to learn who you are. Show us today. Teach us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Trade-offs are part of life. Have you noticed that many of life's toughest choices involve trade-offs? Um, exchanges. You must give up something good to get something better. That's why these decisions are so difficult for us to make. And that's a good intro to the next few verses of Matthew. Let's go back into Matthew 22, verse 36. Here's what the lawyer asked Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's a huge statement for Jesus, because in the Jewish faith, there were over 600 commandments. I know we only think of 10, but there were 600. And Jesus is summating all of those in two. And this is what he's trying to do. Out of everything that you think and believe 
and value in life, let me tell you what needs to be most important. What if you and I lived out of what was most important? The other day I was um, getting my hair cut. I know you can't tell, but <laughs> it was, I don't know what they cut off, but anyway. Uh, and I was, I was, if you've ever been into a, into a barbershop, if you've never been into a barbershop, it's an interesting experience. You should go. Um, so I was over, I was like listening to the conversations happening while I was getting my hair cut. And it was all men um, in this barbershop. And I was, this is going to sound super arrogant of me. And um, maybe I do need to repent of arrogance. But I was sitting there listening and almost just shocked at like the futility of the conversation. Like, how absolutely meaningless. <laughs> I was in there for about an hour. I was sitting on the bench waiting, you know, for a while until the chair to, to get over. And then I sit down in the chair. And like, I'm just listening. I'm like, and we as men, can I just pick on us? For, I'm talking passionate. I don't mean like bored. I mean like passionate about the dumbest stuff. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm just like, man, is this what I'm like? Is this what I sound like to the rest of the world? Just shocked, just utters at the futility. And then I started thinking, you wonder what preachers think about when they're just doing nothing. This is what I started thinking, is this what all of us are like 24-7 around the world? Just living in the futility? And, and Jesus is speaking into our lives. And this is what he's trying to say. You need to wake up. Because in the middle of everything you're concerned about, here's two things that are really important. Do you know you live, you've, you have already simplified life down to one or two, or if you're really complicated, three things that are really important to you. You've already done it. You didn't need Jesus or the Bible to, to get you to do that. Because life's too complex to have a hundred that when we interact with the world around us, we've already quantified and qualified how we're going to gauge and judge what the best decisions are for us. Oh, wow. Can I give you some really common ones? Yeah. This is going to be painful for some of us. <laughs> Say, I'm ready. Yeah. Let me give you one. Pleasure. We, we've, we've defined where I, what, what good decisions or bad decisions based on is it pleasurable to me. So we rule out a thousand decisions every day that we don't even ask should we do that because it's already, we've already answered it. It's not pleasurable. So we narrow life's decisions down to two or three things that I want to do today. And the fact that those two or three are the questions I'm asking uh, show the, the reason they're even on the table is because they're in the pleasure basket. Some of you, you're like, oh, 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 oh no, I'm not, I am not, I'm not near that shallow. For me, I have the long-range view in mind. I'm thinking about retirement. So for me, it's investments. It's my financial well-being. It's my stocks and my bonds. and It's my retirement account. 
And it's amazing how we convince ourselves like how much more honorable that is than pleasure. When all we've done is we've separated pleasure by 50 years. That's all we've done. It's the same value system. We're just saying, I'll delay my pleasure. Okay? You guys on Oxford Road, you do your pleasure now. I'll do my pleasure someday. And then we applaud ourselves for that journey. But we've already eliminated thousands of decisions because we've chosen what's most important. Let, let me say it like this. You've already chosen your greatest commandments. You say, oh, we don't like the Bible. I don't like to come to church. I certainly don't like preachers. I definitely don't like preachers with American accents. This is going way too far. Because they just tell me what to do. There's too many rules in religion. You have rules. You have people you don't hang out with because they have different commandments than you. You have, you have uh, cars you won't drive. Oh, you ain't seen me one of those. I'll have a family, but there's no way I'm driving a van. There is no way. I mean, whatever. You've already decided. Why? Because, because your commandments won't let you. See, you think you're autonomous and like I am ruling my own decisions every day. No, 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 no. Years ago, you decided what commandments would rule my life and every day you wake up and you pray and serve and worship those commandments. Jesus is not giving commandments to a people who live lawless. Jesus is giving a better way to live. All of us are ruled by commandments. This is what Jesus, Jesus is coming into that space and he's coming with this assumption. And he's hoping you get it too. I created the cosmos. I designed humanity. I am the intricate maker of the DNA of your very soul. And my commandments are not to bind you, but they're to lead you to flourishing. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's coming to your, to your car and he's going, here's the operating manual. If you want this to operate like it's supposed to and last as long as it could, you may want to follow this. He's not trying to bring his commandments because he loves slaves, human robots. If he, did, if he was into that, he would, have, he would have taken our will away and created people who had no choice but to obey him. Instead, he wants, he wants to lead us into a place of flourishing and he speaks his commandments with that on his mind. That is his agenda. And if we listen to them any other way, we're going to miss the heart of God. Jesus is coming with that in his mind. Jesus is responding to the lawyer. You, should, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I wish he didn't put a second in there. Because it's so easy to love God. He's perfect. You know, you know what I'm about to say next, right? But your neighbor, just look to the left or the right. Yeah, them, they're not perfect. 
Jesus added a second commandment. We're going to talk about that at another point in this chapter. For now, we're talking about the first commandment. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can I just, just get biblical studies theological with you just for about 30 seconds? Is that okay? M most biblical scholars believe that this principle is the foundational principle for the entire Old Testament. That this is the essence of the Jewish religion, these two commandments. It's called the Shema. It's actually a prayer that Jews pray twice a day. They have for thousands of years. That There are Jews that woke up today and prayed this prayer this morning. And I want to read you where they get it from. It's in Deuteronomy chapter number 6. You want to go there with me? Deuteronomy chapter number 6 is going to be up on the screen above me. I know we're getting into a lot of Bible. I will transition into something else here a bit different in a few minutes. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 4 through 9, it's called the Shema. And the, and the word Shema is a Hebrew word, and it means listen. That's what it means. Listen. But it doesn't just mean listen as in hear. In the Hebrew understanding of the word listen, they don't have a word that means understand. The word Shema is, in Hebrew, is the word listen and understand. They don't have those, they're, they're not two separate things. For some reason... In, in the West, we invented this idea where you can listen but not understand. My kids have mastered that reality, just as I did when I was their age. Yes, I'm listening, but understanding... No. So the Jewish, the Jewish idea is to listen is to understand. Are you with me? So Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what Jesus is quoting. Everybody, every one of his hearers would have, would have known what he was saying. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is an amazing story. I wish we could dive deeper into this. But ultimately, Israel's coming out of slavery, literally. A couple million people were in slavery to Egypt, and they're, they're coming out, and God's realizing... You, you have been in slavery so long, you think and feel and act like a slave. You don't know what it's like to think like a free person. And the law of God, we really wanted to dive into this, the law of God is actually spoken to shape an entire people around what it means to be free in God's eyes. So God is speaking the foundational principle in the Shema of what that means. So he speaks into this place, and what I want to do is I want to break down this commandment for you. But before I do that, I want to go back to the thought I introduced a little while ago. Some of our toughest choices in life are trade-offs. Have you noticed? Trade-offs, like I'll eat broccoli now because I want the me who eats broccoli in a few weeks from now, right? I want whatever that is. It's a trade-off. Well... God is speaking kind of into that. He's speaking what's most important. And uh, it, there's, there's an early church father who's also a philosopher called Augustine. Have you heard of him? St. Augustine. So he lived around 400, the 5th century. And um, he, he tells his, his testimony in a book called 
confessions. And the dude lived a wild party central life. And a life literally of hedonism. And if you think we, if you think we know how to party here in Manchester in 2022, you should go back to 400 in the Roman Empire when basically everything was on limits, okay? That's how he lived. And then he read a book by, by a Roman philosopher called Cicero. And in that book, Cicero challenged him. He was 19. Augustine was 19 when he read this. That your ultimate happiness is not found in pursuing hedonism and pleasure. And something woke up in Augustine's mind and in his heart. And it sent him on a pursuit. And he eventually became a Christian. And now he's, now he's one of the most profound and important thinkers in all of Western philosophy, Augustine is. But he wrote a book called Confessions. And in Confessions, he traces all of, of our problems with unhappiness, dissatisfaction, lack of fulfillment, down to what he calls disordered love. Augustine says that our ultimate problems in life are the fact that we love the right things in the wrong order. And the way he defines sin is as disordered love. That we put value on things that shouldn't have value, and we devalue things that should have value. And it sounds a whole lot like, to, uh, like the Shema to me. Jesus is identifying what you should love and value most. This is his diagnosis. You have a love problem. You have a love problem. You and I have a love problem. It, it, it doesn't take us much, much imagination to see this. When, when the most important things in our life are often neglected. Can I give you some examples? How do I know my loves are disordered? I, 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 put, I put this answer in two categories. One is protection and the other is redirection. How do I know my loves are disordered? Protection. When my love is shaped by avoiding pain. Some of us, the way we know our loves are disordered is because when it comes to interacting with things that are most important with the love aspect of our life, we're ambivalent. Can I pick on gents again? Sorry, guys. This is my day to pick on you. We're often ambivalent towards really important things. I'm picking on you because I love you, okay? We're ambivalent. It's just like, yeah, love, you know, yeah, the things that matter my family, yeah, they're, they're kind of important. You know, football, yes. Family, okay. You know, career, yes. Family, yeah. There's an ambivalence. Oftentimes, it's the, this, this ambivalence, and the reason I call this category protection is because we're actually in our past, We've been wounded from what was supposed to be a source of love, but it actually wounded us. It caused us pain. So the reason why our loves have become disordered is because we're in self-protection mode. Another reason, another way is through control. So we say this, love, love can happen in my life, but only on my terms. In my way, here's how love's going to happen. A third way is um, sometimes, some of us, we act like the victim of love. So I, I have no part to play in this story. 
I'm just the victim of somebody else's. How do I know my loves are disordered? Number one, protection. Number two, redirection. Here's, here's what redirection looks like in your life. When you're asking something to give you what it doesn't have to give. Let me break that down for you. Career, we look to, to our careers for meaning. Careers can't give you meaning. We look to accomplishment for fulfillment. We look to our appetites, sexual appetites, other types of appetites for identity. We look at health and wealth for safety. We look at relationships for value. We look at expertise for confidence. We look at perfection. We look towards perfection for wholeness. We, look at, we reach for control because we want power over our life. We, we look to, to experiences because we want freedom. And we, we seek revenge because we hunger for justice. These things don't ultimately satisfy, do they? We search for them. How do you know you have a disordered love? Because I'm, I'm searching for something deeper from something that can never provide that. That's how I know my loves are dis, disordered. And what's the solution? Augustine and Jesus are both in agreement on this. It's time to reorder our loves. It's time to allow the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word to come in and identify what's the order of loves in your heart and then allow his grace to reprogram that and then live in the freedom of what that's like. So I'm going to dive into this verse with you a bit. The Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I want to just dive into some of these words a bit. Can we do that? Can I teach you three Hebrew words? Is that all right? You'll be a Hebrew scholar before you leave here today. The first thing that God identifies that we need to adjust in our life is that we need to love God with our heart. This is the Hebrew word lev. Can you say lev? Very good. Does that sound like any other word that we're used to saying? Valentine's Day is coming up. That was a, that was a freebie for those of you who forgot. Love, heart, lev. That word heart, I want, the reason I want to dive into these is because it, this is going to show you. It's going to show you layers of the life you're invited into to love God in a fresh way. That's what I believe at the end of this is you're going to know, here's how I'm meant to love God. The first way is with our heart. Now, our English language does not translate this Hebrew word quite, quite properly. But the word heart here means the internal you. Probably what we would say is soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. That's the word heart here. It's your internal world. It's the whole of your internal world. It's the immaterial you. It's your life's center. It's the cockpit or the driver's seat of your life. It's the central part of you that guides you. It's your, it's your feelings, your emotions and affections. It's your thinking, your thought life. It's your desires, your freedom of will. What, what, what the command here from Jesus is to say, love, love God with the internal parts of your world. The immaterial aspects. Your reasoning, your desires, your passions, your emotions. Can I just tell you the only hope for humanity is the renewal of the human heart? We, you, why? Because you can, you can legislate against wrongdoing, but the only thing that can change the desire to do wrong is a new heart. 
If legislation was going to fix the world's problems, we'd be there. We have the most sophisticated governments that we've ever had in the history of the world. You know what's going to change us? It's the human heart from the inside out. That's the work of Jesus. So the first thing is the internal us. We're, we're called to love God from the core of who we are. It's why Proverbs 4.23 would say, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You live out of your heart. You live out of your heart. Your entire internal world. Jeremiah 17.9, look, look how much faith Jeremiah had in about the, the condition of the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That guy was filled with hope. He lived in a day where um, the, 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 the people of Israel were, were, had adopted pagan rituals. They were sacrificing their own children. And this dude's looking around going, man, you guys are following your hearts? But you're thinking that can lead you to the right place? That is a mantra of my generation. Oh, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Like, like as if that is going to, if that is assured to lead me to a place of flourishing. Yes, follow my 40-year-old heart. It knows the great law of life and the, the, the deep inter-truth that, that holds everything together. I mean, what? No, that's not it. There's, some, there's got to be something more. And what the prophets in the Old Testament look to is the renewal of the heart. Look at this. This is what David cried after his sin of murder and adultery. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Ezekiel looked, looked towards this in his prophecies that he said this, uh, the voice of God saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's the promise of God over your life and my life. Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so now, how do we increase in our love for God with our heart, with our internal world? And this is what I want to challenge you to do. You cultivate love in your heart. You cultivate your internal world. This is one of the, the, the most challenging things in our modern culture is cultivating our internal world. How do you do that? Silence and solitude. There's one. When was the last time you were quiet? By yourself, no noise. When was the last time? I know young, families with young kids, you're like, if you only knew. That is my deepest heart's desire. I have three girls. I feel the pain, okay? But you can find it. You know when mine is? Before everybody, the only time I can control in my life, which is before everybody else wakes up. And most of the time, I turn on a fake fireplace on YouTube, on my television. Yes, I'm that weird. And I sit down and I drink a cup of coffee and do absolutely nothing else. And I just stare into a blank room. Until my soul returns to my body. That's how it feels. Here I am. Oh, right, yes. I am alive. 
You've got to cultivate your internal world. And God's say, this is what God's saying. The place of flourishing for you means you love God with all of your heart, your internal world. You've got to cultivate that. Silence and solitude. Counseling. Some of you are like, oh, no, he just didn't say that in church. I'm sorry, you can't pray everything away. Can I just tell you that? Yeah, that deserves a... You just can't pray everything away. You need to get in, 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 uh, you need to get in a place where there are wise counselors who can speak into your life and help you cultivate your internal world. Are you hearing me? Some of your problems that you're dealing with right now could be avoided, but you've failed to cultivate your internal world because you've, you've removed counsel from your life. You hearing me? Counselors, scripture. I mean, just open. I don't mean reading someone else's blog where they talk about a half a scripture for 400 words. I mean, open it up, turn, hear the pages turn. I know some will be stuck together because it's been a long time since you opened it. Just kidding, guys, just kidding. And then just start reading. And don't predetermine what, what you're going to get out of it. Let, it. let it get out of you what you need to get out of you. That's how you approach Scripture. This is, this is cultivating your internal world. Sabbath. Sabbath, you know what that means? The phone's off, the computer's off, and I'm off. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just allowed, what am I doing? I'm creating space for my internal world to be cultivated. That's loving God with your heart. Love for God must be cultivated. It is not an atomic meteor that hits you out of the sky and all of a sudden you're the most radical person for Jesus in your world. It doesn't work that way. It's your internal world. It must be cultivated. I promise your love for Manchester United, you've been discipled into that. Are you hearing me? You were taught who were your rivals as a kid. You watched your, you watched your parents you know, lose their mind over a game. What did that do? It shaped, your, it shaped your imagination over what's important. You need to reshape your imagination. And the way you do that is by cultivating it, getting intentional about what matters most. Why did Jesus speak into what matters most? Because we needed to have something from the outside of us come and identify this is what matters most. Do you have, do you have just two more minutes? I can finish these other two things. You've got to love God with your heart. Number two, you've got to love God with your soul. That word soul is the word nefesh. Can you say that? Nefesh. And that, that word soul is actually, it's a bit misleading in English because it actually means your whole being. This word, this word nefesh in the Old Testament, sometimes it's just meant purely to talk about a body, a physical body. So it's, it isn't this disembodied part of us. Actually, in Hebrew thought, they did not have, there was no separation in their mind behind between a soul and a physical body. There's only one word, nefesh, and it was all of you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The idea of separating those is very Greek. It's, it comes from Greek philosophy. It's very platonic, but that's another message. So nefesh, your whole being, it talks about your aliveness, yourself as a human being, your consciousness, your movement, your living body, the biological you, but more than that. Jesus is calling you to love him with all that you are. Now I'm going to set some men free in here. Because sometimes we sing worship songs about love, and this, is, this, is, this applies to women too, but, mo, but many men deal with this. And you're sitting there, you're clear, you're like, I, never, I have no idea what they're talking about right now. 
That's it. Or maybe you're just not emotionally geared and you're like, that language? What you need to, to learn is how to love God with your nefesh. There's a physical devotion to God. Get your body involved. That's what I'm trying to say. Do you know it is worship, it is love to God when I serve him with my physical body? How do you cultivate love for God with your nefesh? Worship and pray with your body. Use your voice. Increase the volume. Dance. Move around. Lift your hands. Kneel. Clap. It matters. You don't just worship God in your heart. I'm so on fire for God in my heart. I feel it right now. That is a part of it. We, we love God with our heart. We just dealt with that, your internal world. But we're also called to love God with our nefesh, our whole being. There's a physical aspect to our devotion to God. And God demands it from us. He demands that means that I don't have to feel it. Because to love him with my body is not about emotion. It's a, physical, it's a physical response. You can serve with your body. When we minimize love to emotion, we, we can unknowingly ostracize people who are less emotionally oriented. But for those of you that were on serve teams today and you got here early, you woke your nefesh up before, while, uh, while many of us were still asleep, and you caught up here and your nefesh built coffee stations for us or set up speakers on stands, that was worship. You were loving God with your body. Come on. That's loving God with your body. That's why purity with your body, I know this is old-fashioned. I know you're going, are you living in the 1950s? I may be. That's why purity with your body matters. Because your body is not insignificant. It matters. Try to disconnect your mind purely from your body and see if that ever works. It doesn't. It can't happen. You're like, mind over matter, mind over matter, mind over. That only takes you so far. Sometimes it's actually your body that takes you somewhere first. And the mind follows. Hopefully I don't have to get any more graphic than that. You're tracking with, we're all one being. Okay, so love God with your nefesh. Number three, I, this needs way more time than I'm giving it, but I am blazing through. The third one is strength or might. Can I just break that down for you? And then we're going to pray and then, we're gonna, then you can go eat your roast. Number three, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might or strength. This is the word ma'od. Say ma'od. Yes. It means, this is what, this is, ma'od is an, is an interesting word. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a word that means, the best translation is your muchness. I just kind of made that up. It's, it's, it's really about your capacity. It's not just strength as in physical strength. If, if the writer of Deuteronomy wanted to use physical strength, it would have used a different word in Hebrew. Here's what it means. It means devoting every possibility, opportunity, and capacity you have. Are you hearing me? Devoting every possibility, opportunity, and capacity you have. Do you, you want me to tell you this for business owners or people in the marketplace? This should set you free. Because you, could re, you, you need to realize, much of what I'm doing in life 
is increasing my ability and my capacity to offer worship to God. University students, what are you doing? You're enlarging your mental and intellectual capacity to provide more to give and to love God with. Business owners, you're going, man, how does this fit in the kingdom? I'll, I'll tell you how it fits in. It's not just spreadsheets. You're increasing your resources and your capacity because now I know the zeros are increasing on my bank account, but what am I doing? I'm increasing the ability, the capacity, the possibility, the opportunities I have to worship God. That's what he's talking about here. Yes. That's what he's talking about here. You know what this does? It places ambition in the Christian life. We've had this idea of I'm either like I don't care about my life's direction or I'm obsessed with success and I have selfish ambition. No, there's a different option. The third option is this. I'm ambitious for giving God worship. And I'm so ambitious about giving God worship that I want to increase my capacity and my opportunities and my possibilities because I want more to worship him with. What if instead of playing one instrument, I could play ten? What if instead of just playing other people's songs, I wrote my own songs? What if instead of just working for someone else, I work for myself? That way, I have more resources. I have more to be able to offer God worship with. Are you hearing me? This is holy ambition. Some of you have shut down that part in your heart because you think it displeases God. It doesn't displease God. The thing that displeases God that because he knows it's going to lead to your ruin is when you're at the center of your ambition. Put, put God at the center of your ambition, all of a sudden all you're doing is increasing the ability to worship him with what you have. Are you hearing me? What is that? That's your ma'od. When someone asks, what are you doing? Why are you going back to school? You're 48 years old. Why are you going back to university? I'm just my ma'od. That's all. Just my ma'od. You'll see one day. You'll see one day. When every tongue and nation is giving glory to God at the end of all things, and God comes to make all things new, and your ma'od, your muchness, your more, your increasing is given like worship and praise before God. And for all of eternity, it's going to be like a memorial to your ma'od and how good God is. Would you stand on your feet? Worship it.